It's true, money doesn't equal happiness. But the lack of money too often traps people in what's called the working poor, an unhappy state of paycheck to paycheck living defined by stress, exhaustion, overwork, and a chronic inability to keep up with one's bills. Nearly one in three people in America live in this kind of financial insecurity. In this video, we take an honest, direct look at the challenges facing so many of those living in a perpetual struggle for survival and why it's so difficult to escape the gravity well of financial need once you're stuck within it. Now, this is a very important and timely topic for our society that's just not receiving enough frank discussion these days. So join us for one now. Keep watching. The fact is, is that poverty is a cyclical mound of negative indices, essentially. Like there's just no positive, nothing good is going to happen in your day. Nothing good is going to happen to make you happier, healthier, safe. Hello, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. And this week, we're doing something a little different. You know, we spend a lot of time and focus in these videos discussing how to protect and grow financial wealth, which is an, it's absolutely important in today's increasingly uncertain world. Uh, but as I often talk with many of the experts that we have on this program, um, you know, we focus on the policies that our government is pursuing, uh, particularly those of the central banks like America's Federal Reserve, how these policies have resulted in an extreme and accelerating wealth gap, where an increasing amount of the nation's prosperity is ending up into the pockets and portfolios of the top 1% leaving the remaining 99% farther and farther behind. Not having enough savings or income to get by is increasingly becoming a fear for more and more households. Many workers are finding that they just can't keep up with the rising cost of living, no matter how many jobs and side hustles they juggle. Which is why I've been looking for a guest expert who can paint for us firsthand the hard realities of the working poor which here in America comprise roughly one third of the households. Today, we have the good fortune of speaking with Linda Torado, author of the book, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. I'm very much looking forward to having an honest, direct discussion about the challenges facing so many of those in society living in a perpetual struggle for survival and why it's so difficult to escape the gravity well of financial need once you're stuck within it. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, great to be here. Thanks, well, um, look, uh, I mentioned uh, the book that you wrote, uh, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America, um, which is an amazing book, which I think we'll, we'll get to in just a moment here. Um, but it, let's just talk a little bit about the, the genesis of it. So as I understand it, it was born from a comment that you posted to an online forum that suddenly went viral in a huge way. Can you briefly give us a sense of um, your life at that time when you wrote it? Um, I believe you were amongst the definition of the working poor at that time, uh, but correct me if that's wrong. And, and what prompted you to, to write that? Uh, well, a woman on the internet was wrong and I had to correct her is essentially the genesis of my entire life story since then. Um, and, and what she had said was that she had been um, at the grocery store and saw somebody that had an iPhone using an EBT stamp card 
Um, and she said, I, I, I know I'm a nice middle-class liberal lady and I'm supposed to not judge, but can you remind me why I as a taxpayer should not be angry at this one person whose life I saw for 20 seconds on a shopping belt conveyor and made a whole lot of moral decisions about. And I said, well, there's many reasons that you shouldn't do that. Um, first of all, you have no idea what that situation was. Maybe her elderly neighbor had an EBT card because she's you know, disabled and she was running errands for her. Perhaps she got that phone as a gift from her uncle who can't save her from overall poverty, but can give her a nice thing on Christmas. Maybe she has it for work. Maybe she got it for free with two-year sign-up, which you know, back in 2013 was completely a reasonable thing to do. You sign up for phone service for two years, they give you an iPhone. You pay it off over the course of your contract. Like The fact that you would just look at somebody and say, you're on food stamps, ergo, I get to dictate how you wear your hair shirt, um, really enraged me. And so I wrote an entire screed. It was a very long comment um, about what it was like to be poor and be judged constantly and to have people at the supermarket checkout making decisions about your, your ethicality and your morality and your basic human value because they think they know what's in your bank account or how you got there. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, it turns out a lot of people feel like that and not a, a lot of people were curious about it too because people who've never experienced poverty um, were like, oh, wow, we didn't realize it was like that. And people who had experienced poverty were like, yep, that's exactly what it's like. So it got really popular. And next thing you know, I had a book deal. And next thing you know, I had a book. And next thing you know, I'm lecturing at Yale. So um, it's been a weird couple of years. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, that is a bit of a crazy story. And, and at that time, uh, and again, I, I only know what I've sort of read on the internet here, but sounds like, you know, you were in a lifestyle where you were working extremely hard to put food on the table as well. I mean, you were, you, you weren't just yeah. defending that person sort of from the sidelines. You, you were living a, you know, a, a very, um, I don't want to say hand to mouth, but a very, a, a very tight lifestyle. Could, yeah. I, I was running a restaurant and working in a different restaurant and I couldn't afford food. Um, which is a unique kind of cruelty that we do in America. Um, it, it, I, I would work opening shift at a Burger King an hour north of me, and I would work the closing shift in IHOP the, an hour south of me. Um, so I was driving somewhere between five and six hours a day through the mountains of Utah, which is great fun. Um, my husband was working. We had two kids. I was attempting to go to school at the time. Um, it was it was completely unsustainable, um, which I, I think is the reason I was on such a hair trigger is just because <laughs> I was so sleep deprived. Um, and and you you know take drink half a, a case of coffee before you left and go driving home because you didn't want to fall asleep on the road, and then you'd have to drink two or three beers when you got home so that you could sleep because of all the caffeine. Um, so like it was it was it was a bit of a whirlwind. I, I don't actually have a very clear memory of it anymore, except for what I've written, because I, I was so sleep deprived, I didn't really form much. Um, the day is all kind of hazed together in a life like that, and you miss entire years. Well, all right. So, um, you know, I've read through the the post that that, you know, led to the book. And you make a number of observations here about uh, just sort of the daily experiences and challenges of, of people that are, you know, again, you know, str struggling just to have enough food to, to eat and, and provide the bare, barest of essentials for their family. 
um, just one here at the beginning is that rest is a luxury for the, ri the rich. And you just told us about basically, you know, the six hours of commuting you had to do and the fact that, you know, basically you were having to... Well, and and that also compounds because when you're um, working, particularly in the service industry or the gig economy, but especially when you're stacking up boss on boss on boss, you never have what's called a day off. You might get scheduled off at one of your jobs, but you're still going to be expected to work because you're available. They'll want you for longer at your other job. So um, taking off for a kid's birthday party requires the approval of four different people. And the, also the gods being in your favor, you know, and, and the sun don't shine. Yeah. And, you know, you, 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 you say in your writings there that, um, uh, you know, not only are you sort of at the, the vagary of having to get all those people's approvals and whatnot, but a lot of them don't even really recognize you as an individual. They just recognize you as somebody who's working a shift or a uniform. Um, and they don't really have a a relationship with you where it might be like, all right, Linda, I know you've been working hard. It's your son's birthday. Let me help here. Um, they're just trying to find a body for the shift. And there's, there's a real sense of kind of just being treated like a robot or a, a cog in a machine where there is no sort of empathy in the system. Um, probably because your manager, honestly, is probably just as, you know, <laughs> stretched and stressed as you are. Right. I see you nodding. Hey, those, well, those are the poor people that are on salary. And there's nothing like the only thing worse than working for minimum wage is running a minimum wage joint on salary because you know that salary is not, you know, you're putting in 90, 100 hour weeks for $45,000 a year, which you're, you're putting in the kind of hours that um, bankers and lawyers say, oh, that guy works incredibly hard. He is one of the toughest law firms in the country. They put in 100 hour weeks. And you've got everybody on minimum wage just kind of laughing and being like those lazy suckers. 100, that's it? And you don't have to commute? And you don't have to physically do anything? And you're complaining? Like, I don't understand the, the lax morals of the upper class. And it's kind of a joke that, that, that service workers will tell of like, man, that guy only put in 100 hours and he didn't even have to lift anything. He wouldn't last a day here. Um, and and it's, it's interesting that those same people and it, for uh, you know, for 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 us below, it's a bit of a defense mechanism to mock the wealthy. Um, specifically, because when we mock the wealthy, uh, nothing happens to them. When they mock us, we die. And so the the stakes are very different with those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, gosh, that's uh, just such a harsh comment. Um, uh, I'm known for my brutality. Well, no, 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 no. We're, we're here to have a, a, an honest, frank conversation. Um, and, and there are a couple of things you wrote that, that tie to that. Um, one is you've said, we have learned not to try too hard to be middle class. It never works out well and always makes you feel worse for having tried and failed yet again. Better not to try. So there's this sense of, you know, the football just keeps getting pulled, you know, away from you. And of course, you know, throughout all this, you're, you're, you're sleep deprived, you're stressed. To your point, uh, you know, many of these people, they, they, they're working 100 hour weeks and, and you know, th there's no vacation in there. There's no two, two weeks or three weeks of vacation to be, to be able to look forward to. This is just your life. This is just the slog. Um, and uh, you mentioned that, uh, that nobody gives enough thought to depression. You have to understand that we know that we will never not feel tired. We will never feel hopeful. 
uh, we will never get a vacation. So, um, you know, it, it, it just feels tragic to, to say those words, but you can understand when somebody is that kind of ground down and they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel that it's, it's gonna get any better. Um, I mean, it really just, you, you, you've, you just have to sort of shut down, I think, almost mentally to well, be able to endure it. Yeah, um, the, the depression and, and the hopelessness is almost a coping mechanism um, because it's, it's worse to have your hopes dashed. Like if you truly let yourself believe that anything was going to change, it would break your heart every single day. And so you just learn to kind of accept your station and not buck too hard. Um, and try to get above your place because you know somebody will kick you down. Um, but there, there also is science behind this. The, the cognitive load of poverty, which is to say the million different decisions that you have to use to balance when, um, for example, I have to be to work at job A at 6 a.m. I have to pick up the kids from school. I have to be to job B at 6 p.m. Okay, how many pennies is that in gas? because I can only afford precisely as much as I need, because I know that two days from now, my phone bills do. And if my phone gets turned off, I can't work. Um, and so those kind of constant calculations, nobody is better at math than poor people. Like we can do insane mental calculations in, in just an instant. Um, and, and the cognitive load of constantly keeping all of these shifting because none of this can be relied upon either. The kid gets sick and you have to pick them up early. There isn't a lunch rush, so you get cut and sent home early, which means your paycheck is going to be short. Or there's a dinner boom, so you have to stay an extra two hours because there's just not enough staff otherwise. So like the, the constantly shifting stands, the constantly shifting um, calculations that people in poverty do also keep them too busy to plan long term because there's like X amount of cognition any human can do. And when you're constantly consumed with short term cognition, it actually impairs your ability to develop long term cognition. So part of that hopelessness is, is, is literally because we don't have time for dreams. Yeah, you just literally don't have the neural bandwidth for it. Um... Wow. And then, of course, on top of that, too, everything you mentioned, that complexity that you're constantly having to try to calculate, you know, it, it's super stressful because pretty much all those factors for people in that position are outside of their control. Right. You don't know if the bus is going to be on time. You don't know if the car is going to break down. You don't know what's going to happen at work that day. Right. Um, so there's just, you know, in Murphy's law, you know, exists for poor people just as much as it does for everybody else. In fact, probably even more so. So there's this sense, too, of there's some curveball with my name on it coming <laughs> coming here at some point that's going to even if I try to make some plans, it's going to just blow them all up. And it's interesting you know, when you when, when you look at like the, the, the CDC says that. Uh, it does classify certain types of jobs like, like like night shift night shift jobs are actually classified as a carcinogen um and you're talking about a, a whole category of people here that are constantly sleep deprived and constantly kind of run at that that red line of stress and just mental churning right um that just cannot be good for health mental or physical it's not and add malnourishment to that because despite the obesity crisis the fact remains that most people don't have the time or the money or the resources to eat, you know, whatever the latest craze is. Like a poor person can't be on the keto diet. Like it, it, it's not going to work like that because if you have no idea how many hours you're going to spend at home, 
the imperative is for shelf-stable foods, which tend to be higher in sodium, tend to be higher in cholesterol, tend to be higher in all of those things, and lacking in nutrients. So, um, and, and a salad, as you know, you go to a chopped salad place, that salad's going to cost you $10. You go to Burger King, you're going to get a burger for a dollar, and it's going to take five minutes, so you can do it on the way in between your shifts. And so, and, and the chemicals as well in processed foods are, are serotonin. Uh, producing and so it's like the one small pleasure of the day is that damn cheeseburger but it doesn't leave you necessarily in the most fit mentally or physically um even though that is the food of the poor and always has been and we know that because in you you know hundreds of years ago um you've got writers talking about the food of the poor of why did they get a twist of tea why did they get a, a, a sandwich from the store instead of cooking wholesome food and you're like well at the time Orwell was writing about not everybody had a friggin stove <laughs> like you you had to go get your food outside what do you mean why aren't you cooking for yourself and it, the, you see the same thing now like it was a few years ago I think Bill O'Reilly said well the poor aren't that poor they have refrigerators and this is in the 21st century like yeah everybody has a refrigerator that's a good thing congratulations us well done us as a society but you can't tell me that a refrigerator is a luxury item and in the next breath say why aren't people eating better why aren't people taking better care of themselves well you have to choose one of those things that we're not allowed to have um so it it, it the 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 fact is is that poverty is a cyclical mound of negative indices essentially like there's just no positive nothing good is going to happen in your day nothing good is going to happen to make you happier healthier safe and so like those sorts of things that you're having to call for all of the time become um a bit like atlas it's a bit like bit Atlas Shrugged has always struck me as a wonderful tale of rich people thinking that they could be poor if they really tried. Um, because if you don't have people to serve you, if you don't have people to help all of your life transactions, if you don't have somebody to advise you on this, that, and the other, you're going to be stuck in the same position I was stuck in. And I promise you, you're not going to do any better because no human could. Poverty is not set up to make humans well. Yeah, well, clearly, um, and I, I do want to get to. I, look, I, I, I love to try to sort of end these interviews on solutions. Um, I'm not going to put the weight on your shoulders of trying to solve poverty. I've got some. I've got a couple of solutions. Okay. Well, I, I, I actually, so great. The, the, I, I want to hear what they are. So let, let let's keep that in reserve, though. Um, but you wrote something that I, I thought was interesting, um, and and I I want to see if I actually read it correctly. But it sounded from your reading like you said that. That, that people who are in the working poor, like they're not anti-capitalist and they actually like the idea that you can improve your station in life through hard work. What they are looking for is a playing field that's just not so insanely tilted against them. Did I read that correctly? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, the less money you have, the more you value money um, because it, it becomes increasingly, it's not something um, where, oh, I think I'll have something nice. It's, oh, I think I'll stay alive another day. <laughs> so, like poor people love money way more than anybody else. Um, but the, the trouble is, you know, when, when inflation has outpaced wage rises for 40 years in a row, 
um, that's not much incentive. That doesn't feel fair. Um, when our parents, and I'm, I'm one of the eldest millennials, so when my parents could go to college and buy a house on the first jobs that they got in their early 20s, and my generation isn't slated to be able to do that without crippling debt up into their 50s and 60s, that doesn't feel fair. Um, and, and human beings have an innate need for fairness. I completely agree. Um, in my prior work life, um, we actually would show these videos with these capuchin monkeys that that uh, quite humorous, but shows that really kind of all members of the animal kingdom are just wired innately for for fairness yeah. or, to, or to respond to injustice as well. Um, all right. Well, look. So this is this is where I wanted to go, kind of in, in the meat of this discussion, which is uh, you talked about um, you know rising cost of living. Uh, and really, you know, stagnant wages, you know, I think we're, I think maybe this past like quarter is the first time in like decades that we've seen any potential uh, signs of what could be called um, wage inflation. But, uh, you know, we've had several decades of really just sort of stagnant real wages, while cost of living has not remained stagnant, right? Um, and I think a lot of that is due to the policies that our government runs. And, um, uh, you know, Look, we can argue whether they're the right policies or the wrong policies, but if you just look at what the outcomes are, right? So um, we had the great financial crisis, and then later on we had the, the COVID crisis hit. And in both cases, the official response was, okay, we've got to save the system. We've got to protect asset prices, and asset prices have shot the moon. Well, newsflash, okay, who owns assets? Okay, affluent people, right? People with money. So they've gotten an awful lot better, where, of course, you know, those that, that, you know, I think it's something like 80% of the uh, financial assets in the country are owned by like the top 10% of households, right? So they've zoomed way ahead. They were already advantaged. They zoomed way ahead of everybody else. Everybody else is not even just standing still. They're falling further and further behind because um, A, they're not benefiting from that, but B, all that intervention the government's doing is pushing prices up of everything else. So the cost of living is going up too. So these people are getting more and more squeezed. So my question for you is, um, kind of multi manifold. Um, one is I got to presume that that is a big ingredient in the frustration and the anger that we've begun to see sort of, um, you know, erupt across the country, especially over the past year in a lot of these different demonstrations, you know, the, the trigger might have been some other societal thing. But I think potentially a lot of the, the, the underlying simmering anger is that sense of injustice and getting screwed. Um, I think that I, I, I'd like to take a point by point, otherwise I'll get confused and ramble. Okay, yeah, sure, let's um, do it. Go for it, react so to that. that one, look, when the GFC happened, I don't think anybody had a problem um, with the idea of stabilizing the system, but the idea that you would bail out some banks and not others felt a bit cronyish to people who didn't quite understand what was going on. And then the fact that you would bail out um, banks, but not the people. Like when I learned what a synthetic collateralized debt obligation was, I about lost my shit. Like I, <laughs> when somebody actually broke it down for me and said, this is what a, a synthetic CDO is. I went, so you made up a bunch of stuff, played hot potato with it, and now grandma's out of her house? Is that what I'm getting here? And everybody thought that this was a good idea. These are the people with the degrees, thought this was fine. Um, and, and, and I think that, that people born, um, people who were harmed in the GFC um, 
really have never let it go just have never let it go. And so every every single time something new comes to prove their hypothesis that this is a terribly managed country, primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. And then we go, yep, that's pretty much what it is. All the data shows us that. Um, you know, I think, I think you're right. Like people are enraged and why shouldn't they be? We all live here, we all pay taxes, but we're not all getting equal benefits from the system that we all are members of. All right, so so here's here's where I wanna go with this, which is, um, so I spend a lot of time, as have a number of the experts I've had on the program uh, in this, this video program in the past, kind of railing against these policies and the Federal Reserve, which, which th there's a lot of blame to go around, but I sort of see the Federal Reserve's policies really as the, the headwaters. Um, and, uh, you know, when I hear, when I speak to people from all different uh, socio-demographic backgrounds, um, I bring this up and for a lot of people, it just kind of goes over their head, right? I mean, not, not too many people know what a, a synthetic collateral debt obligation is, right? Um, and, and so what's so interesting to me is I feel like the biggest villain in the room is invisible to most of the people getting screwed by, by the villain. So um, I, I guess one question for you is, is you know, do, do you have a sense, and I don't mean to make you the spokesperson for, you know, one third of Americans, um, but, but do, you, do you have a sense that people actually have a, can pinpoint some of the institutions that are really responsible for this? Or is it just a sense of like, the man is screwing us and, you know, that's our lot in life? Um, it, it depends. I think that, you know, in any socioeconomic strategy, you're going to have people with like specific interests. Like I happen to be the sort of nerd that would be like, what happened here? I think I'll learn everything there is to know about trading. Um, but, you know, most poor people are busy working. They don't have time to figure out how the Fed is structured um, or, or who's in charge of it or, or why those decisions are made. They just Steve, Steve Mnuchin um, and they go, oh, fuck that guy. Uh, like that's that's all most people have bandwidth for. But I think that you know vaguely people do understand that monetary policy is going to impact their lives. The thing is, nobody's going to pay attention to them on monetary policy anyway. So why spend the time? Like we could be watching Real Housewives right now. Why are we reading this book about the Fed? Nobody cares what we think anyway. So and I, I think that that's largely true. So I don't I don't you know, to a certain extent, people are aware and, and the savvier somebody is, the more aware, aware they'll be, but it's not going to change their bank balance. It's not going to change their life in any meaningful way. And nobody's ever going to pay attention to their opinions anyway. So then they're just the jerk sitting in the corner, drinking a beer, talking about the Fed. Like it doesn't really work socially for us. Yeah. Which, which uh, is a shame. And maybe this is just a, a um, you know, a, a, a to hope be clear, of mine. I am often the jerk sitting in the corner drinking a beer, really talking about the Fed. Great. Well, yeah. ne next time we're in the same city, we'll have to do that together. <laughs> but um, I, I guess I, I guess my point is, and I'll move off of this, which is just you know, I, I, I was watching the uh, you know protests uh, from last year, uh, which you covered, by the way, and that's actually how your your eye got uh, uh, injured by a police bullet. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, part of me wishes that if, if, if we're going to have those types of demonstrations, that we should be doing them in front of the institutions that are actually kind of the root cause of this. I think that I would think benefit that last people. Year's protests, last year's protests, I think, were different because they were. Um, they were they were about something else. And certainly, you know, economic insecurity, a lack of resources, a lack of equitable distribution, those things absolutely played into it. But this wasn't Occupy. 
Um, right. The, tr the trigger there was, you know, a, a racial and police trigger. And I, I really don't want to get too far into that space because I am the absolute I wish worst. Occupy, no, I think I, I wish I, I agree with you. I wish Occupy had happened. Um, like, I wish that those protests that do continue to happen were happening in front of the Fed, were happening in front of those halls of power and those triggers. Um, but, you know, again, people, you have to understand, we're terrified to enter those spaces. I was invited to the Saatchi Gallery in London one time by an ICM gentleman. And I, we walked in and I immediately felt like this is not for you. This place is not, don't touch anything. Don't look at anything. Don't breathe at anything. And he just walks up to this video game and starts playing it because he thought it was interactive art. And the security guard comes over and says, sir, please don't touch the art. And I'm like, let's go. And he goes, no, they're fine. Um, the, the fear that I feel walking onto the campus of Columbia or Harvard or Yale that I'll be caught and found out and kicked out um, or blamed for breaking something like we are we are taught not to enter those spaces, not to engage with those spaces. So I think that, that we tend to be avoidant about them when we're trying to speak on our issues. We do it in places we're comfortable with. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, what, so what I'm leading up to with all this is um, you know, I don't see the trajectory changing anytime soon. And so the question is, is do you see kind of the, the anger and the, the resentment and whatever may be simmering here? Do you, do you see it getting worse from here? And how do you think it will manifest? Um, well, I mean, without, without being too dire, we, uh, we know how the French did it. Um, and, and the fact that people are making guillotine jokes in the last few years is not, not an indicator of, of how calcified these positions are becoming because I think the more people see the system failing them and their neighbors and their grandma and then they see that spread, there becomes less and less incentive for us to work within the system or for us to bother with the system at all, because we know that there are plenty of other ways to run a country. We see them. They're right over there. Have you seen Europe? There it is. We could do that. Um, not that Europe doesn't have its own problems, but it, the, the, the very notion that the rest of the world thinks it's ridiculous that Americans have copays. And, and we're just like, no, we love this system. Why would we not want to completely screw everybody out of all of their money and then tell them they can't file bankruptcy? Like the, George Bush's bankruptcy reforms, for God's sake, enraged so many people. And like folk have forgotten about that. But like, no, we still can't default on our student loans. We still can't get loan forgiveness. We still can't go bankrupt. And so when you force people into a corner and then you don't give them any options and then you say all of the ways you used to be able to get yourself out of this corner are now gone, figure it out. Like, yeah, people are going to pop off. People are going to be enraged. There will be um, there, there will be widespread social upheaval and unrest and it's going to suck. Well, um, I wish I could argue with that, but obviously I can't. And I think history is very clear on that. And even recent history, you know, just like the Arab Spring that we saw, um, you know, however long ago that was, 10 years ago or so. I mean, that was because there was a sudden change where uh, in the price of living, where all of a sudden the people who were just hanging on, um, they all of a sudden just couldn't afford food on the table. They couldn't afford fuel. 
And when you lose the, the basics like that, you don't have any choice left but to try to throw out the folks that are running the system because that, that's literally the only option that's left to you at that point besides just rolling over and dying. So I mean, hyperinflation brought us Nazis in a very short retelling of decades of history. Like yep. it, it, it's it, it's real when when people can't make it, they revolt and and revolution. You know, can, you can hopefully it'll be on social media. Hopefully it'll be in the voting booth, but. You know, there's there's always that chance. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well let, 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 let's try to move on to, to end with with whatever positivity that we can put in here. And I want to get to your your, your list of, of some of the constructive things that we can focus on. Um, I do just want to underscore that I and I'm, I'm sure you do, Linda, we're, we're not advocating any sort of violence. But, you know, I'm not advocating <laughs> the violent overthrow of the government, like no, just no. so everybody knows. But, you know, standing up for your your rights as a civil public, you know, that's very important. It's a whole part of what our government, uh, you know, was founded on. Um, all right. So uh, right before I ask you about your, your, your list here, um, uh, you, you wrote some things I'd love to just sort of tap into briefly, which is um, kind of how, you know, especially when you, when, when you were really struggling, um, how you sort of wish you had been treated by others. And again, it's it's there are a lot of these things that, you know, there's always, someone's always going to need to scrub the toilets, right? And, until we have, you know, toilet scrubbing robots, um, it's always going to have to be a person that's going to be their job. Um, you wrote that, uh, I guess my question to you is, is uh, you know, you, you, you had written that, like, you know, being treated with more dignity, um, being more, just seen more, would have made a big difference to you and, and, and would make a big difference to people that are in the space. So for people who are listening, who you know are perhaps better off? Um, what would you want them to hear um, if they want to be more sensitive and supportive to the financially challenged families in their community? Just what, what kind of advice would you offer them to those that are really listening and saying, "I want to be part of the solution"? Just say thank you. I mean, it's, that's why it was so frustrating. Is how hard is it to just say thank you when someone hands you your sandwich or when somebody opens the door for you or when somebody does your laundry? Like, hey thanks for doing that thing so that I've got time to do this other thing that I wanted to do. Cool. Like, I, I don't mind having a menial job. I actually enjoy manual labor. I love restaurants. I like people. I love bartending. I'm a talker. I mean, I loved those jobs. I hated the indignity and I hated um, the notion that I was somehow unintelligent or incurious because I happened to do toilet scrubbing for a living like if you're literally cleaning other people shit up you have a lot of time to think but some of the best arias i've ever heard came out of the back of the denny's the idea that the notion um that you you can't possibly be a valuable contributing member to social fabric because of your station in life um you know what's the problem with the caste system it's it's just that like nobody should be considered untouchable or invaluable because they're doing the jobs that we all need to have done because if those toilets don't get cleaned and every human needs to poop sometimes we all teach our children that like and that bathroom isn't available to you then that's a problem for you that guy did you a favor like it, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's stupid or that he's incapable of doing anything other than cleaning toilets like I, the amount of, of people who want to talk to me about inflation and federal policy now 
that never would have asked me that when I was running a cashier job at Burger King, but clearly I'm capable. I win awards for it now. I lecture at Yale. You know what I did between then and now? I wrote a damn book. That's it. I didn't do it late. I didn't go to college. I didn't obtain a degree of any sort. I just had more time to read more books. So now I know more about the Fed. Like that's, that's, I didn't change. My essence didn't change. My personality, my brain did not change, but without the strictures of poverty, I've been able to thrive. Well, really, really well put. Um, All right. So let's, let's get to um, through you know, however they got there in life, they were born into it, or they made some bad decisions, or they just had bad luck or whatever. As I said earlier, we've got um, about 100 million Americans that are living within living under 200% of the poverty level, right, which is, you know, sort of the, I think, best and the definition. the poverty line of, itself is a bit of a joke. It is a joke because really nobody can live at the poverty line. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, if you, when you live in the middle of the country in a very small town, you know, eating your own produce out of your garden, you could probably make it because rents are low, but that's, you couldn't do it in a city. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, 200% of poverty is still really, really squeaking by. Um, and I used the term gravity well earlier. Um, it's just, it's really, really hard to get out of that, that, that downward pull, right? Once you're in it. So you mentioned that you had some, I don't know what we want to call them, uh, uh, best practices, some constructive ideas for, uh, you know, either folks getting out of that or how we folks watching who aren't in the gravity well can play a better role. So what, 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 what kind of parting words would you like or parting advice would you like to share with folks here? Um, I mean, as a policy requirement, everybody should demand that welfare immediately be reformed. Um, the the way that we do it is both inhumane and like not fiscally intelligent. We could just give poor people money and just let them go see doctors and then all of their problems kind of solve themselves. And we know that because of all of the programs we've ever had of if you give poor people money, they generally spend it improving their lives and gaining some stability. The fact that we um, we see things like welfare as um, selfish or inherently evil is is uh, absolutely just wrong. The the fact remains that money is a fungible thing. We have a lot of it. We could be giving it out in a better fashion. So fighting for those kinds of reforms um, would would be helpful. The second thing is to stop seeing um, poverty and the want to escape poverty or or not be forced into poverty as some sort of moral failing. Like nobody wants to be poor. Who, who, like three people in the world actually dream of being starving artists for the romance of it. And everybody else wants a stable life. Um, So I think that, that you know, immediately reforming things like uh, workplaces, um, indexing indexing the minimum wage, would be incredible um, because again, we haven't seen a wage rise in something like, I think, uh, what, 20 years now, something like that, like it, since, since wages have, have really made any moves. And I think that, that that's going to be increasingly impossible. If we keep allowing employers to 
classify everybody as independent contractors and then we say well why don't you have health insurance because you've got a job then I think that that's going to become increasingly untenable and we see that in um, the number of ER defaults like all of this kind of has knock-on effects so if, if you want to be part of the solution be part of the solution figure out better policies and push for them because they'll listen to you they listen to me now too but they sure wouldn't when I, I worked at Burger King and so for the millions of people that, that are working those minimum wage or working gig jobs, they need passionate advocates that will be listened to to get the kind of reforms that the entire country really needs in order to be healthy, because this is not a healthy society when one third of us can't eat. Like we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. We're the shining city on a hill and we've got people literally starving in the streets. Have you seen LA lately? Like it's just tents everywhere. And when right. we and, and you're there right houses, now, right? I am. Yeah. And it's 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 absolutely astounding. The pictures, there's there's no way to um there's no way to to communicate actually what it's like out here. It is something that I would expect to see in a war zone in a foreign country. Um, it, and, and it's, it's absolutely inhumane and indefensible that we treating this many people like this and saying, oh, well, we can't do anything about it. Look, if we can build skyscrapers, if we can just randomly send rich people to space because they feel like it, we can probably figure out how not to treat human like cattle. Yes. Uh, wow. Uh, very well said. And it really speaks to one of the big reasons why I wanted to bring this topic for today's viewers. One, I, I know, you know, we're, we're on this channel, we're trying to sort of understand all aspects of money. And so you got to look at it from from all dimensions. Um, and I know a lot of people here are people of, of um, uh, very goodwill, you know, who are trying to get out there and do good in the world. But also, uh, I, I want to do this because um, so many of the topics that we, we talk about week to week on this program are, are really, we're, we're really pointing out the unsustainability of the current system. Um, so there are lots of areas in which our society is either failing the populace, or it is, um, you know, way living way above its means in a way where there's going to be a reckoning coming. Um, and, uh, you know, we tend to speak an awful lot about, well, current asset prices are so elevated that there could be a big market correction, right? That, that's one way it could manifest. But where I'm going with all this is there are a lot of risks in the current system that could push a lot more people below that key threshold that you and I have been talking about and push them into the working poor. And I know in your writing, you've said, look, you know, we're not all, uh, you know, uh, deplorables or whatever adjective you want to use, you know, there's, there's, there's homeless PhDs, you know, there, there are, are kids who just got too much uh, education debt that they're just drowning under. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons why, you know, there, but for the grace of God, almost anybody watching this video right now, you know, could find themselves stuck in that gravity well. And so it's very, very important that we really you know, understand what's causing it, talk about some of these policies and ways in which it could be fixed, but also just develop the compassion and the humanity to, you know, uh, you know, treat those people there with dignity, one, because it's the right thing to do, and, and two, because it might be some of us in the not too distant future. I often, um, when I'm speaking in wealthy spaces, I often appeal um, to folks' sense of self-preservation because I found that tends to be a reliable um, way to speak to wealthy people. And the thing I keep trying to say is like, look, all you need is one 
major illness and adverse decision from your insurance company that you're required to go to mediation for and can't litigate for you to wind up paycheck to paycheck. And when we know that, that most people that we would consider wealthy by any definition that I would, you know, upper middle class, and, and you consider the credit card debt to income ratios, and you start looking at all of these metrics, essentially what we're doing is it's, it's creating this Potemkin village of wealth and, and this image and projecting it to ourselves and to the rest of the world, but behind it is just increasingly hollowed out termite-ridden wrecks of houses. And, and when that facade is pulled, you, you find a societal collapse. Um, and, and we've seen it with COVID of, of how many people couldn't, we, we didn't have the infrastructure we needed. We didn't have the policies that we needed. Had we had, um, say, a single payer system, we would have been able to take care of, of, of a pandemic in a much more holistic, much more sensible way. And so the these policies that help the poor help you rich people. And I, I, tell, I tell that to people all the time. I'm like, no, 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 we wanna help you help us help you. That's what we want. Um, because I, I think that, you know, thinking about what happens if, if um, you know, your assets completely slide, what happens if you find yourself having a market correction um, and you lose your house, like that happens to people. So like, what, what would you want in a system where you were stuck in it? Um, what world would you create? What country did you want to live in so that when the market has a correction, you're okay for that two months before you can get back on your feet? Yeah. All right. Well, re really well said. And uh, yes, uh, you're doing the exact right thing from the marketer's handbook, which is finding that hook of self-interest to get on their, their radar there. I read a um, lot. Well, Linda, I, I really thank you for um, such a frank discussion here um, and for, you know, all the, uh, the, the, the progress that you have made from when you first wrote that forum post uh, and the beacon that you've become to so many people. I also know that it was a little tough connecting today, given that you're taking time for this interview while you're traveling. Uh, so thank you so much for making the time to do this. For people who are interested in learning more about you and your work, where can they go? Um, I am Killer Martinez on Twitter and Instagram. Um, obviously, I wrote a book. Um, my work is uh, in newspapers and radios and podcasts around the world. Uh, you can just put my name in the Google and basically read everything I've ever written. Although I will warn you, it's far more profanity-laced um, than this interview has been. So when somebody goes, I gave my I gave your book to my grandma for Christmas, I go, oh, how'd that go? <laughs> that should be fun. Um, so right, just well, you, you warned me before this interview and you've been exceptionally uh, clean. I wouldn't say squeaky clean, but but definitely clean enough for YouTube. Well, you have to stay on brand. People do expect a certain amount of, of profanity and blue talk from me. So. All right. Well, thanks for being your authentic self. And uh, again, thank you for, for the great discussion. Um, would love to have you on the program again at some point in the future. And I really wish you all the best with all the good work that you're doing. Thank you so much, you as well. We hope you've enjoyed this thought-provoking discussion with author Linda Tirado. If you'd like to read the original online forum post of Linda's that went viral and catapulted her onto the path to become a best-selling author and an Ivy League guest lecturer, you can download it for free at wealthion.com poor. 
And if today's discussion has advanced your perspective at all or moved you emotionally, the free download is well worth the read. Thanks for watching.